Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn off all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part Two. At 11 o'clock a.m. on August 4, 1892, the Borden's 25-year-old maid, Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan, is laying on her bed upstairs, falling into a doze in the stifling summer heat. Ten or fifteen minutes after hearing the city clock strike the eleventh hour, she hears Lizzie Borden scream from downstairs, Maggie, come down. Bridget calls out, alarmed, What is the matter? Lizzie replies, Come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Bridget rushes down the back stairs and finds Lizzie standing by the screen door. Her face was pale. Bridget started to head towards the parlor where she had last seen Andrew Borden. Lizzie stops her, saying, Oh, Maggie, don't go in. I've got to have a doctor. Quick! Bridget goes across the street to get friend and neighbor Dr. Seabury Bowen. Dr. Bowen is not home but his wife promises to send him over to the Borden house as soon as he returns. Bridget goes back to 92 Second Street, avoiding asking their next-door neighbor, Dr. Kelly, for assistance. Dr. Kelly was Irish, and a rich family like the Bordens could never associate with an Irish doctor. Bridget finds Lizzie standing exactly where she left her. Bridget asks, Miss Lizzie, where was you? Lizzie says, I was out in the backyard and I heard a groan and came in and the screen door was wide open. Go and get Miss Russell. I can't be alone in the house. Bridget runs off to fetch Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, leaving Lizzie Borden alone in the house where someone had come in and killed her father just minutes before. Another neighbor, Miss Adelaide Churchill, is returning from the market when she witnesses Bridget Sullivan running down the street. She sees Lizzie Borden standing at the screen door and asks, Lizzie, what is the matter? She had to ask the question more than once before Lizzie finally answered her. Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Adelaide Churchill comes into the Borden house and finds Lizzie sitting on the bottom steps of the back staircase, looking pale and empty. She bends down and puts a comforting hand on Lizzie's shoulder. Lizzie, she says. Oh, Lizzie, 
Where is your father, Lizzie? Lizzie replies quietly. In the sitting room. Where were you when it happened? Mrs. Churchill asks. I went to the barn to get a piece of iron to make fishing sinkers. Then I heard a distressing noise. Where is your mother? I don't know. She had a note to go and see somebody who is sick, but I don't know but what she is killed too, for I thought I heard her come in. A few minutes later, Dr. Seabury Bowen arrives at 92 Second Street. Adelaide Churchill has sat Lizzie Borden down in a rocking chair in the kitchen because she began looking faint. Lizzie tells Dr. Bowen that her father is in the sitting room. Dr. Bowen enters the sitting room. Andrew Jackson Borden, 69 years old, is laying on the black sofa. His head is propped up on a cushion, his long legs resting on the floor, his boots still on. There was little left of his face. It had been brutally hacked at ten or eleven times with an axe or a hatchet. One blow to the head would have been sufficient to kill him instantly. One of his eyes was sliced in half. The blood from his wounds was bright red and still running fresh. Some of it had stained the wallpaper above his head. Between the cushions, his long black Prince Albert coat had been wadded up to make more of a pillow for his head. Andrew Borden had settled down on the sofa for an afternoon nap, and he never woke up. He had been dead only a few minutes. Bridget Sullivan returns to the Borden house with Alice Russell just in time to hear Dr. Bowen say, Murdered. He has been murdered. A few minutes later, the first policeman arrived. By a weird twist of fate, August 4, 1892, was the day of the Fall River Police Force's annual clambake at nearby Rocky Point, so only a skeleton staff was still actually in town at the time Andrew Borden's murder was discovered. A young policeman named Officer Allen was dispatched to 92 Second Street. He took one look at Andrew Borden's still-bleeding corpse, and then left the house, saying he must put in his report. Later, during the trial, when Officer Allen was asked to give a description of the body of Andrew Borden as he first saw it, the only memory he could conjure up was, I noticed how small his ankles were compared with the size of his feet. Meanwhile, Adelaide Churchill, Alice Russell, and Mrs. Bowen were crowded around Lizzie, who still sat in the kitchen rocking chair, her eyes closed. Curiously, none of these women would be able to recall at the trial exactly what the dress Lizzie Borden had been wearing looked like. But Mrs. Bowen, before she departed the house, did notice something that stuck in her mind. Lizzie's hands, folded in her lap, were immaculately clean. 
They were not the hands of someone who had been searching around a dusty and dirty barn for a piece of iron. Victoria Lincoln writes in her definitive book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, Alice Russell did not notice what Lizzie wore. She was too anxious over Lizzie's condition. She did, however, see that the blouse had pulled loose from the skirt in front, as it does when a woman lifts her arms to comb her hair or reach something on a high shelf. She assumed that Lizzie had pulled it out in a first attempt to loosen her clothing, that instinctive gesture of a fainting woman in a tight-laced age. She began to loosen Lizzie's clothes still further and asked Mrs. Churchill to sponge Lizzie's forehead. Lizzie stopped both of them, saying, I am not faint. Alice Russell asked Lizzie where she had been when her father was murdered. For the fourth time, Lizzie responded, again giving a slightly different answer to the question. This time, Lizzie said, I went to the barn to get a piece of iron or tin to fix my screen. The coal stove in the kitchen was burning hot, and it was sweltering in the room. Alice Russell suggested that Lizzie lay down on the dining room sofa, which she did. Lizzie asked Dr. Bowen to send a telegram to her elder sister, Emma, at Fairhaven, but warned him to put it gently, as there was an old lady in the house who should not be alarmed. Dr. Bowen left to do just that. Lizzie, Bridget, Alice Russell, and Adelaide Churchill were now alone in the house. Lizzie again brought up the fact that Abby Borden was still missing. Lizzie said to Bridget, Maggie, I am almost positive I heard her coming in. Why don't you go upstairs and see? Bridget Sullivan was understandably terrified. She said, I am not going upstairs alone. Adelaide Churchill volunteered to go with Bridget. Slowly, very slowly, they climbed the narrow front staircase up to the second floor of the house. As they reached the top of the stairs, both women could see into the guest room. Looking at the space underneath the guest room bed, they could plainly see that on the other side of the bed, on the floor, face down, was the body of Abby Durfee Gray Borden, 64 years old, dead with a mass of dark, congealed blood surrounding her butchered head. They did not go into the guest room, but crept back downstairs, shaking with fear. Upon seeing their faces, Alice Russell asked, Is there another? Adelaide Churchill replied, Yes, she is up there. The time is now 11.45 a.m. on August 4, 1892. Abby and Andrew Borden have both been murdered in broad daylight inside their own home, while both Lizzie Borden and Bridget Sullivan were in the house. More policemen arrived. 
Then the medical examiner, Dr. William Dolan, arrived at the Borden house on 92 Second Street. The investigation begins at this moment. It has, in a sense, never really ended. The medical examiner, William Dolan, concluded that Andrew Borden had been murdered at around 11 o'clock a.m. Abby Borden had never left the house. Based on the coagulation of her blood and the cooling of her body, even in the stifling summer heat, he estimated that Abby had been killed at least one hour before Andrew, between 9.30 and 10 o'clock a.m. Andrew Borden had been struck from above while he slept. Abby Borden had been making the bed in the guest room on the second floor when her killer entered the room. The first blow of the murder weapon had been aimed at the back of her head, but instead struck the back of Abby's neck, cutting off a chunk of her scalp. The remaining eighteen or so blows were directed at the back of Abby's skull. As Abby fell to the floor, Dr. Dolan believed her murderer had straddled the body, hacking again and again. There are photographs of the bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden as they were discovered. As always, I suggest viewing them with caution. Like the surviving photographs of the Whitechapel murder victims, looking at them makes you thankful for the age of black and white photography. Officer Michael Mulali asked Lizzie Borden if there were any hatchets in the house. Although she was later to deny it at the inquest, he said Lizzie answered, Yes, they are everywhere. This was soon proven to be true. Officer Mullally accompanied the frightened Bridget Sullivan to the dark basement of 92 Second Street. In the basement, Bridget showed the officer two hatchets. One of them had dried blood and hair on it which was later forensically identified as being from a cow. In the damp fruit cellar, they found another one that was stained red with what later was identified as rust. Then Bridget remembered something that perhaps she shouldn't have. Concealed up in the basement's chimney, there was an old box. That box contained several dusty hatchets that had seemingly been long forgotten. However, one of the hatchets in that box was only a blade, its handle broken off and missing. Officer Mullally noted that the break of the wooden handle appeared to be very recent. The wood was still white at the breaking point. The hatchet head was covered in ashes 
not dust, as the others in the box were, as if it had been recently washed and then covered with ashes in an attempt to make it look like the rest in the box. But it was not. And this is the blade that many suppose to have been the murder weapon that killed Abby and Andrew Borden, although it has never been absolutely proven to be the murder weapon. This mysterious hatchet head is today in the collection of the Fall River Historical Society, where you can go and see it for yourself if you like, if you dare. Bearing in mind that Lizzie's story was that she was out in the barn for 20 minutes to half an hour when her father was killed, another officer named William Medley decides to investigate for himself. He goes into the barn in the Borden's backyard, which is astonishingly hot on this August afternoon. Victoria Lincoln writes of this moment in her book, A Private Disgrace. It was a one-horse stable with room for a carriage. In other words, a two-car garage. Just inside the door, along with an old vice and some yard and carpentry tools and a hand water pump, was a smallish wooden box of assorted scrap, bits of broken metal, doorknobs, old locks, and a folded sheet of lead. Steep, ladder-like steps without rails ran up to the hayloft. The air in the loft was oven-like. Dust lay thick on the floor, on everything. Five minutes in that place would leave you streaked with sweat and grime. The dust lay undisturbed. Neither feet or trailing skirts had crossed that floor for a long time. And Lizzie Borden, who said she spent 20 minutes to half an hour in this place while her father was being killed, was seen immediately afterward, sweat, dirt, and dust-free, her hands immaculate and clean. But if you've paid attention to what was in the barn, you might perhaps understand why Lizzie Borden never wavered in her testimony of having been there. Meanwhile, Assistant Marshal John Fleet of the Fall River Police questioned Lizzie, asking her when her father had come home. Lizzie answered that her father had come home between 10.45 and 11 o'clock a.m., which was not his custom. Andrew had come in after Bridget unlocked the front door, which was never locked during the day, and he had gone into the sitting room where he, quote, took out some papers. Lizzie saw that he was, quote, feeble, and I assisted him to lie down. Then she started ironing handkerchiefs in the kitchen and then went out to look for iron in the barn. When John Fleet asked Lizzie Borden if she could think of anyone who might have murdered her father and mother, Lizzie sharply corrected him, saying with some deep-rooted anger, She is not my mother, sir. She is my stepmother. 
My mother died when I was a child. A remark that would echo loudly through the time to come. No note written to Abby from a sick friend was ever found, and no one ever came forward saying they had written one. Likewise, the roll of papers Bridget observed Andrew carrying in his hands when he came into the house for the final time were never found. The fire in the kitchen stove burned hot that day. If you remember, Uncle John Morse, brother of Andrew Borden's first wife, Sarah, had been instructed by Andrew after breakfast on August 4, 1892, to return to the house for lunch. When he did return to 92 Second Street around noon, John Morse was apparently oblivious to the crowds that had begun to gather in front of the house and the flurry of activity inside it. Instead of going into the house immediately, John Morse instead strolled into the backyard and ate two or three pears that had fallen from the trees. Only after doing that did he go inside the house where he was told that Abby and Andrew Borden were now dead. Curiously, Uncle John Morse remembered every detail of his morning away from the Borden home, even memorizing the number of the horse car that had taken him to visit his sister and niece nearby, as well as the number on the conductor's hat. However, when questioned, he couldn't remember what he had eaten for breakfast that morning. It was almost as if John Morse knew he would need a strong and detailed alibi for his movements on August 4th during the time the murders occurred. Perhaps he sensed something was wrong in the house, that the mounting tension was destined to break out into violence. We do not know. Meanwhile, Alice Russell led Dr. Bowen upstairs to Lizzie's room. They found Lizzie coming out of Emma's tiny bedroom, which was connected to hers. Lizzie had changed out of the heavy silk dress she had been wearing and had put on a pink and white striped dress of a lighter material. Alice left Dr. Bowen alone with Lizzie where he gave her a mild dose of bromocaffeine to ease a headache that had come on. In later days, Dr. Bowen would begin giving Lizzie small doses of morphine to calm her nerves, a fact that would become very significant in the days and weeks to come. What Lizzie and Dr. Bowen talked about when they were alone neither of them ever told. During that conversation, whatever it was, Alice Russell returned downstairs. She noticed the handkerchiefs on the kitchen table that Lizzie had been ironing earlier that morning. Beside them was one of Lizzie's hats. Alice Russell collected these items and returned them to Lizzie's room. This is very important. 
The presence of the hat suggests that Lizzie was indeed planning to leave the house, as she had told Bridget she might. But then her father came home early. Police later found a small spot of blood on the sole of one of Lizzie's shoes. There was one more small spot of blood found on one of her stockings. When questioned about this, Lizzie told the policeman that it was a, quote, a flea bite, and that she had explained it all to Dr. Bowen. A flea bite was Victorian code for menstrual blood, which was, of course, not discussed in polite society, and especially not by men. The matter was dropped, even though analysis showed that the spot of blood on her stocking was more saturated on the outside. The possibility that Lizzie Borden was menstruating at the time of the murders was something that would affect subsequent events. At 3 o'clock p.m., the bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden were laid side by side on the dining room table and autopsied, where just that morning the two of them had eaten their final meal. Remembering the talk about possible poisoning, Dr. William Dolan removed and tied off both of their stomachs and submitted them for testing. No evidence of poison was ever found. Even in the stifling summer heat, the autopsied corpses of Abby and Andrew Borden remained on the dining room table covered in white bedsheets until the undertaker arrived to collect them the following morning. After receiving the telegram at Fairhaven, Emma Borden did not take the first available train back home to Fall River. She did not take the second train, or the third, or the fourth. For reasons we do not know, Emma Borden did not return home until 6 o'clock p.m. Perhaps she too received the news and was fearful about what may have happened. Perhaps the telegram was written too vaguely so she did not immediately suspect the worst. But, like John Morse taking his time in the garden to enter the house again, Emma's delay in returning raises many tantalizing, unanswerable questions as to why. Bridget was too afraid to sleep in the house that night. In fact, she never spent another night there. As darkness fell on the eventful day of August 4, 1892, the inhabitants of the Borden house prepared for bed. Emma and Lizzie slept in their bedrooms. Alice Russell stayed the night in Abby and Andrew's bedroom. Uncle John Morse slept in the guest room where Abby had been murdered, her blood still on the floor and wall above where she had fallen. The bodies of Abby and Andrew remained sheeted on the dining room table. Officer Joseph Hyde 
was on duty guarding the Borden house from the outside that night. Through the windows, he saw an oil lamp cut through the darkness of the house. Lizzie Borden was coming downstairs, followed by Alice Russell. Lizzie was carrying her slop pail, a tall receptacle normally kept in the bedrooms, down to the basement. Lizzie went to the water closet in the basement and then took her slop pail into the laundry room. Alice Russell seemed terrified. Officer Hyde reported that she was actually shaking. The reason being that Abby and Andrew Borden's blood-stained clothes were piled on the laundry room floor. Lizzie went to a sink and rinsed out her slop pail. Then Officer Hyde saw her stoop down and thrust something into the cupboard below the sink. He could not see what it was. Then Lizzie and Alice Russell both returned upstairs, leaving the Borden house once again in darkness. A little while later, Officer Hyde observed Lizzie Borden come back down the stairs with the lamp. This time she was alone. She went down to the basement again, and she bent over the sink. He could not tell what she was doing. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 3. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going dark.